Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. This week, we're one year away from the election, where Donald Trump will be seeking four more years in power. He'll be the first incumbent running for re-election after having been impeached, unless the Senate votes to remove him from office. Ellie Mistal will analyze what it would take for that to happen. Also, Joe Biden may be the front runner, but he's slipping, and it seems doubtful that he'll get better at this. Big donors are pulling away from him. But do the so-called moderates in the party, the Wall Street Democrats, have a plan B? Do they have a backup candidate? Jeet here will evaluate the possibilities. There are a lot of them, but none are very promising. Plus, left politics can win in New York City and L.A. and San Francisco. But what about Iowa and Ohio and North Carolina and Arizona? Mike Lux says left politics can win all over the country. He's a longtime strategist for the progressive movement and Democratic candidates. We'll speak with him later in the hour. And finally, Amy Willens will report on the recent street protests in Haiti. It's one of those whole countries of Trump's. First up, Republicans in the Senate. Trump Watch starts right now. Republicans in the Senate, 20 will need to vote to convict Trump if he's going to be removed from office. Is that possible? For comment and analysis, we turn to Ellie Mistal. He's executive editor of Above the Law, as well as the legal editor of WNYC's More Perfect. And he's a contributing writer for The Nation. Ellie, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. You need 67 votes in the Senate to convict and remove a president who's been charged by the House with high crimes and misdemeanors. And there are only 47 Democrats or independents. That means you need 20 Republicans to break ranks and vote for removal. Let's assume for the moment that we have Mitt Romney. That means we need 19 more. And everybody says that's an impossible number to reach. The first obstacle we need to consider is the Democratic leadership of the Senate. What's your assessment of Chuck Schumer's readiness for battle? Yeah, it's very low, right? I mean, you're saying let's assume we have Mitt Romney. I'm premising this on that we have Joe Manchin <laughs> and Kristen Cinema, and that's not a fait accompli, right? And yeah. I think that's the kind of stuff that starts to fall on Schumer's head. Like, Schumer has not shown himself as an effective leader for keeping his own people in line, to keeping for keeping his own Democrats on message. So when it comes to actually advocating for, uh, you know, to change the minds of the Republicans, Schumer hasn't done the kinds of things that one would want, you know, a strong minority leader to use, right? He hasn't used the guerrilla tactics. He hasn't, he hasn't done the stunts. He hasn't done the protests. He hasn't, he's not out there constantly, you know, making the case and making the argument for the president's criminality. So I don't have a whole lot of faith in the, in the Democratic minority leader in the Senate, which to me means that, you know, the people are going to have to do this themselves. And you think that the people themselves may make a conviction in the Senate possible, that it's not hopeless. And your first piece of evidence here cited in the, at thenation.com is a conservative website called The Daily Caller. I don't know The Daily Caller. What is The Daily Caller? It's like, 
I don't know, Tucker Carlson dude bros living in their own echo chamber. Trust me, I only, I only read the Daily Caller when I want to understand the complete weakness of the conservative intellectual argument <laughs> or just make myself feel better because I understand science. Like, so so I, I, don't, I don't put the journalistic integrity of the Daily Caller um, at a particularly high level. However, they are super, it's a super conservative website, and the Daily Caller, Caller claims to have polled all 53 Republican senators, and found that only seven of them ruled out impeachment outright. And even for those seven, I think three or four of them were mainly making process arguments. Like we have, there's been no due process or whatever um, they're talking about. And those process arguments will fail by the time we get to the Senate when Trump will have the opportunity to be put on trial and cross-examine witnesses and bring his own witnesses if he wants to put Giuliani on the stand and see how that goes for him. So in your piece in The Nation, you say the place to start in looking for those 20 Republican votes is with the Republicans up for re-election. There's 23 of them. Some of them, of course, are never going to vote to remove Trump. The names Lindsey Graham and Moscow Mitch come to mind. But, but there are others, aren't there? Some others? Yeah, I mean, like, bottom line, 23 Republicans have to vote on whether or not to convict a president who, by the time we get through the Senate trial, will have been, it it will be publicly obvious that he abused his power in an attempt to extort Ukraine, right? They're going to have to vote on whether or not they think that's wrong, and then in November face their voters in their state. And so while we think that Again, conventional wisdom says, well, they'll never break because they're, they're worried about their own jobs. Maybe they'll be worried about their own jobs. Of the 23 Republican senators running, um, Trump's approval rating is underwater or near or just break even in 10 of those states, which account for 11 senators because Georgia has to run both of their senators this time. So if you can start to break through there with the, in the, with, with the senators in the states where Trump's numbers are already underwater, to say nothing of the fact that his numbers in all likelihood will get worse as much as more of this information comes out publicly. Like that's how you start to break the dam. These people, they're politicians. So their primary concern is keeping their job. And if they start to feel like hanging on to Trump is not a life raft, but instead a weight around their ankles, they might well ditch him. And we also have to remember, we're not talking about a vote this week. We're talking about a vote in a couple of months. Public hearings, public trials. Again, the Senate process should be an actual trial-like setting, right? That could be a problem for people who have to run in Colorado or Florida or Georgia or North Carolina or Iowa um, this this uh, in 2020, and by naming those states, I just told you that you know you could see movement from Cory Gardner or Susan Collins or Joni Ernst, right? Like there are a lot of Republicans that could potentially start to cut bait with Donald Trump after this trial. What's what do you think is a realistic target number? How how many of the 23 Republicans facing re-election might vote to remove Trump from office? I mean, again, it's, I'm trying to be hopeful and yeah. optimistic that yes. there is a core of decency in the Republican Party. Um, and many people have gone broke uh, believing that that <laughs> existed, right? But, 
you know, if of the 23, if we got 10, if we got 10 of those 23 people running, Republicans running for re-election to break, like that would be significant and that would put us kind of well on the way to actually impeaching him. So let's stick with this core of decency idea for a minute. Of those who are not running for re-election, how many might have this core of decency? At least 10 of them run around all the time pretending like they have a conscience. Mitt Romney, Mike Lee, Lisa Murkowski, Ben Sass, these people, Rand Paul, these people act like they got into politics, they got into the Senate for some higher constitutional purpose than mere partisan politics. Now, I tend to think that they're hypocrites, right? I, I look at their votes on Kavanaugh, I look at their votes on their refusal to stand up for Merrick Garland, and I, and I call hypocrisy on their actions most of the time. But if they want to pretend like they have a conscience, then the clear evidence that we already know, but will be made even more clear and more public, that Trump extorted the Ukraine should arguably move a constitutionalist like Rand Paul or Ted Cruz. I mean, if they vote for acquittal, then what they're essentially saying is that the impeachment clause in the Article One of the Constitution just no longer applies. And they might be willing to save, say that to save their own hide, but when you talk about these people who don't even have to run for re-election, what hide is Ben Sass saving, right? Like, what, what does Mike Lee gain at this point from continuing to support a corrupt and likely criminal president, it's, it's, you, you can lose a lot of money betting on Republicans to do the right thing. But if you've already got maybe like five, six, seven Democrat, uh, Republicans running for re-election who are against impeachment, and you've already got Mitt Romney, and you've already got Lisa Murkowski, then the pressure on a Ben Sass or a Mike Leach or even a Ted Cruz starts to look different. I'm hoping. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping. That's a, a great way of putting it. We still need a few more votes after the ones who are up for re-election, after the ones who might have a conscience. Is there any place else to find a couple more votes among Senate Republicans? And this is where I say, like, it takes the people. Like, you have to put real activism, grassroots pressure on these people to make it very clear to them that if they don't you know, vote for conviction, there will be political consequences to pay, if not now, then somewhere down the line. So I look at somebody like Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. Did you guys know there's a Republican senator from Pennsylvania? He's like the only Republican senator <laughs> left, like north of the Mason-Dixon line, right? Like, I, I think that it will be difficult for a guy like Pat Toomey to vote to acquit President Trump if the people of Pennsylvania are putting enough pressure on him, telling them that they will remember his vote when he's up for re-election. I think Ron Johnson, who actually seems to be somewhat implicated in, in some of this stuff, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, simply because like he is you know, also an international kind of Ukrainian person, so he might have had some dealings uh, around this. I mean, Ron Johnson knows that what Trump did is wrong, whether or not he's willing, he's obviously not willing to say that now. But you know, Wisconsin is not a safe state for a Republican. Um, could you get Ron Johnson? Could you get Rick Scott and Marco Rubio? I mean, these, Florida is notoriously you know, evenly split, evenly matched, whatever. Trump's underwater in Florida. 
like the like is is Rick Scott or Marco Rubio willing to stake their political futures on defending the Trump presidency? Because I'll tell you this, John, and I've told this to a lot of people: a vote for for the acquittal of Donald Trump is going to look worse over time, especially if Trump actually gets acquitted, right? Like we have seen with the Ukraine thing that this, this Ukrainian scandal is a direct result of Donald Trump feeling emboldened after the Mueller report. If he survives impeachment, how emboldened will he feel then and what additional crimes will he commit after that? And so when you think about voting to acquit you know, the president, it's a lot like being on a parole board. You want to be merciful, you want to be whatever, but you let the, you let the wrong guy off of parole – they, go, they get released and they go out and commit more crimes, that's kind of on your head. And I think that that will be on the head of a Rick Scott or a Marco Rubio or some of these people in you know, very contentious states if they acquit Trump and then he goes on and commits even more crimes. Your analysis at thenation.com concludes on what I think is an utterly brilliant point. You say instead of Trying to find the 20 Republicans whose votes are needed to convict, let's look at it the other way and try to count to the 34 Republicans needed to acquit the president. Are there 34 solid votes to acquit? Will there be in a few months after the hearings and the trial have been on TV? I I reframed it that way just because. The assumption, the, again, the mainstream, the mainstream conventional assumption is that Republicans start on acquittal and have to be brought over. But what if, besides the seven people that the Daily Caller found out, Republicans start honestly not knowing, right? Like honest, be, being somewhat open either way. If you start from that premise and then try to count to 34 Republicans who have to proactively go out there and take a vote saying that this president's actions are legal and fine and constitutional. I don't know a lot about Mike Crapo in Idaho, but like you're a Republican for Idaho, fine. You're probably, (laughs) you know, you're probably not gettable, right? But you, but when you count one by one by one, Getting all the way to 34, I'm just saying it's not a fait accompli, and that's really the point of my article. That's what I want liberals and people who care about the rule of law to understand. This fight is not over in the Senate as long as we, the people, go fight for it. Eli Mistal, he did the numbers on Republican votes in the Senate. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Eli. This was great. Thank you, John, so much. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch Podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now it's time to talk about the dilemma of the moderate Democrats. For that, we turn to Jeet here. He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. Jeet, welcome back. Good to be here. Well, New York Magazine recently wrote a piece, the writer was Olivia Nutzi, saying that Joe Biden is running a, quote, zombie campaign. 
you know, whatever problems he faces, whatever mistakes he's made, he's still the front runner. He's still raising a lot of money. I wonder if you agree that he's running a zombie campaign. Well, I think the zombie uh, analogy holds in a couple of ways. I mean, the thing with zombies is that they're very hard to kill, right? (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, Joe Biden, he's kind of like lumbering along, uh, kind of brain dead, uh, kind of inarticulate, uh, very zombie-like, but he's still uh, going forward. And it is true that um, in the national polls especially, he's leading. I think things look a little bit differently when you look at the um, early states where uh, I think uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, and Nevada, um, he's either trailing or he has a very small lead. And, you know, it seems doubtful that Biden has a way to improve his poll numbers. So, so let us imagine for a minute that we are the kind of Democrats that, that are usually called moderates. Do we have a plan B? Do we have an alternative? Do we have an alternative to Biden? Do we have a Viable. Well, I think I think in some ways that they the problem is that they have too many alternatives. <laughs> There's like uh, if you look at like all the candidates that are running in that sort of centrist stream, uh, you know you have Pete Buttigieg and Klobuchar and Delaney. Uh, there's uh, and Booker and Harris. So this is almost like a plethora of candidates to choose from. Um, I think that the, uh, and that might be one reason why nobody has sort of taken the lead. Now it's hard for them to get the name recognition you need. Um, I think Pete Buttigieg maybe is kind of standing out a little bit. He's like doing a little bit better in the polls, by which I mean he's like at 7% as against 2%. Uh, but also the fundraising. He's like the only candidate whose fundraising is equal to uh, Warren and Sanders uh, and is far above Biden. So it seems like if you're going to get anyone, it's going to be Pete Buttigieg. But I think he has as many problems as Joe Biden, if not more. So let's talk about Mayor Pete. He is in in fourth place. He has raised and is raising a lot of money. He's also famously gay. Would the Biden supporters, if if Joe fails, support a gay candidate? What do we know about this? Yeah, I, 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 we, well, first of all, his support is so low, it's kind of hard to know where, um, uh, who would support him hypothetically, uh, and it's also partially a function of name recognition. Um, there was an ar- argument in the uh, New York Times, uh, uh, an article over the weekend saying that he would have trouble in South Carolina because uh, there's a lot of African American voters there. Um, there's a preponderance there, and uh, the art- article speculated uh, that he would have trouble with gay uh, voters. I was like, voting for. A, the article speculated that uh, African American voters uh, would be reluctant to support a gay candidate, and they signed. Uh, they cited a focus group that the Buttigieg campaign itself did. Um, I'm a, just a little bit skeptical that that's the, the dynamic that's going on there, because first of all, one would think that um, uh, white. Uh, South Carolinians, who are also more socially conservative than the national norm, would have the same problems. Uh, but also, um, if you actually look at Buttigieg's supporters, what supporters he has, they tend to skew like towards people who make more than $100,000 and who are like, you know, um, uh, have college education or more. Uh, and so the Biden base is not that. The Biden base is sort of like it's multiracial, but it also um, uh, has a significant working class component uh, and a significant non-college educated uh, component. So it's not quite clear that Buttigieg is a candidate for those people. Okay, Biden's 
bedrock base of support, especially in South Carolina, which is one of the earlier primaries. Biden's bedrock is African-American voters, especially in South Carolina, who, you know, have this loyalty to, uh, to the Obama, to Obama. Of course, there are other African-Americans in the race who would love to replace Biden in the moderate slot. There's Cory Booker, there's Kamala Harris. Do you think they could replace Joe Biden in the hearts and minds of African-Americans? Well, I think that the uh, uh, 28 race maybe gives an indication of what they would need to do, uh, which is that like Barack Obama was actually polling uh, very poorly among African-American voters uh, until he won in uh, Iowa. And that kind of showed them that, you know, this is a guy who could win. Uh, and uh, uh, these are voters that are, tend to be very pragmatic and are very interested in uh, backing someone who can win the White House. So if they did very well in Iowa, I think that they would have a, a shot. And I think that's the sort of path that's open to them. Um, it's not clear. I mean, Harris had a boomlet after the first debate, but she's kind of sunk since then. Um, and it's uh, and I think so, uh, especially with younger uh, voter, African-American voters who are very interested in the sort of, you know, you know post-Ferguson, Black Lives Matter politics, uh, Harris has a lot of weaknesses because of her record as a prosecutor. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's hard to see um, either of them unless they can somehow pull the rabbit out of the hat in Iowa and New Hampshire. Biden has, has problems. It's hard to see which of the other moderates currently in the race could replace him. Uh, your your piece at thenation.com has, has a devastating quote that Mayor Pete is, quote, a college town mayor with fewer black supporters than Donald Trump, close quote. So let's say Biden doesn't make it. Uh, mayor Pete can't substitute him. Cory Booker and Kamala Harris don't look promising. There is, of course, the nightmare scenario, stronger together with Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think that uh, there has been a lot of speculation about Hillary Clinton precisely because Biden is so weak. Um, and but I, my sense is that this is really coming not from Clinton herself, but from people around her um, who are kind of her entourage and really have no existence apart from Hillary Clinton running for president. And uh, they, they would, uh, uh, because I, to actually re-enter the race, she would need a kind of like, you know, funding infrastructure in place. And it's getting a little bit late in the day. Uh, and I, I'm not sure that uh, uh, even Clinton herself probably is aware that the, you know, the uh, Democrats are not going to be very hungry for, uh, you know, Trump versus Clinton rematch, given what happened last time. Of course, there's one other moderate in the race. How could I have forgotten, as a St. Paul native, Amy Klobuchar? She is pitching herself very clearly as the moderate who can carry not just Minnesota, but Iowa, Wisconsin, and Michigan. What about Amy Klobuchar? I actually think, like, if it was a general election, I think Klobuchar is in a lot of ways the most plausible uh, moderate. Like, uh, uh, um, in her time in Minnesota, she has kind of shown sort of crossover appeal, um, and she polls very well. I just, like, we haven't seen, like, any evidence of traction uh, in the race, and I think it's very telling. Like, 
you know, there's Biden who's running on sort of name recognition and being sort of um, uh, Obama by osmosis. You know, he he was in the same room with Obama for, for many times. Uh, and then, but you have all the other lesser ones, and the lesser ones have been attacking Warren and Sanders for being too ambitious. But that attack has not given getting gotten them anywhere. So I really feel like. Um, Unless we see like some sort of like miracle or some sort of really unexpected thing, you know, Klobuchar, like the rest, seems to be going nowhere fast. Well, we've run through virtually the entire list. There's only two left. Does does the difficulties of all the people we've talked about mean that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders is our next president? I think that I mean, if I were calling it today, uh, I, I I think that. Uh, those are the ones that are most likely to have a shot. I mean, I feel like um, Warren maybe has a slight edge just because she's able to um, bring people on board that um, Bernie uh, alienates. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, uh, although, I mean, I, I don't want to rule out the zombie scenario, which is that like a brainless, inarticulate, uh, you know, half-dead creature uh, could <laughs> defeat everybody. <laughs> This is going to be a Democrats 2020, Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> so we we read that the big donors are pulling away from Joe Biden. The Wall Street Democrats who want Biden or Mayor Pete or maybe even Hillary, their problem is not that Elizabeth Warren cannot win. It's the opposite. They are afraid that she will win and tax the heck out of their wealth she will lose the support of the Wall Street's Dem- Democrats following out the scenario that she gets the nomination. How serious a problem is that? Is that a devastating, uh, uh, game-changing fact? No, I don't think so. I mean, like, I think that the um, uh, what Warren is doing and what um, uh, sort of following in the footsteps of Bernie, but also interestingly following in oh, the footsteps of Obama 2008, um, is a small donor revolution, like really uh, getting a lot of the small donors. Um, and I, in some ways, this would be, um, it's a gamble, because like, can the Democrats raise enough money from small donors um, in a national election uh, in a way that nobody has really ever done before? Uh, but I mean, the numbers that Warren, uh, and especially Sanders are racking up are really impressive, and do indicate that there's a kind of body of the population out there um, that that would support uh, something like this. And what that would do is really render the sort of impact of Wall Street sort of obsolete. Um, and that that would really change American politics. I mean, if you have, you know, one political party that isn't dependent on Wall Street, then, you know, you could actually do a lot of things that politicians have been afraid to do. In one final note, all of the things that we would like that candidate to do, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Bernie, uh, require that the Democrats at least win three Senate seats. If that doesn't happen, none of this is going to be possible, no matter who's president. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's right. Although I think that things are kind of looking up. I mean, if you actually like look at the recent polls in the kind of states that are up for grabs, Democrats are doing a bit better and Republicans are suffering a bit. So uh, we'll see how that plays out in 2020. But um, I don't think like it's... Um, I don't think it's impossible to imagine, uh, you know, President Warren or President Sanders with a Democratic Senate. Jeet here. Read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Jeet. Thank you. It's been great to be here.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Next up, left politics can win in New York City and L.A. and San Francisco. But what about Iowa and Ohio? What about Illinois south of Chicago and New York State north of New York City? Mike Luck says left politics can win all over the country. He's a longtime Democratic strategist for the progressive movement and for Democratic candidates. He's had a career that spans four decades and six presidential campaigns. He's worked with the AFL-CIO, MoveOn.org, Planned Parenthood, and the NAACP Voter Fund. And he's written a new book. It's called How to Democrat in the Age of Trump. He's also a contributor to The Nation. We spoke with him a year ago in August 2018. I started by asking Mike Lux how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez managed to defeat a longtime incumbent who was an establishment Democrat. I tell you, she came, she came out of nowhere. Uh, she, she literally, as your, uh, as your listeners probably know, she literally tended a bar, you know, before she ran for Congress, uh, uh, the, the ultimate uh, grassroots insurgent candidate. Uh, but she, uh, she caught fire uh, with people, um, not, not just because she's a charismatic person, and she is, um, but because she articulated a vision of working class politics that, that I would argue goes beyond left right. It's more uh, who's got the power and who doesn't, who's inside and who's out. To, to me, it was a classic example of the, the, the Democratic Party leadership. I just think they've gotten out of touch with their own grassroots. We, we've become too much of a top down party in Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, and we've fallen asleep to what uh, grassroots working class folks uh, really care about. And she tapped into all of that and scored uh, the upset of the year. Well, what the Democratic establishment has been saying ever since she won was that her kind of politics may work in the Bronx and Queens and, in, you know, South L.A. and Oakland, but it's not going to work in the middle of the country and it's not going to work in middle class suburbs uh, Tammy Duckworth, senator from Illinois, said uh, we have to be careful not to be, quote, too far to the left, close quote. You you have a piece in the nation's arguing that they're wrong about that. Why do you think they're wrong? Uh, Alex's campaign represented the people who cared about working people, the outsiders, the powerless. And uh, that's who responded to her. The same kind of folks uh, are feeling that in Iowa and Omaha and uh, Montana and uh, Ohio. And if you look at the kinds of campaigns that have been uh, successful there against, uh, really against the, the trend line uh, in American politics, the, it's been populist Democrats, working class Democrats. Uh, when you look at Sherrod Brown, he is the only Democrat uh, to have won statewide uh, for an Ohio elective office in the last 10 years. Every other office statewide uh, has been won by Republicans. But Sherrod Brown, uh, six years ago, running against more money uh, from Karl Rove, mostly, uh, and, and his funders, uh, you know, Wall Street and the big, the, all the big businesses, uh, he he had more money spent against him than anybody else. Was vastly outspent by by super PACs, but he never trailed. Uh, even when he was dark on TV for months at a time with these attacks going on, 
he never trailed and he and he won by a bigger margin than Obama won that year. Uh, Obama squeaked through in Ohio by a little bit, but he won uh, uh, by, I think, six or seven points. Uh, And right now, this is supposed to be the toughest race, one of the toughest races of the year for Senate Democrats to hold because it was Ohio and Trump had won Ohio by nine points. Sherrod is running way far ahead in the polling, uh, kicking the ass of the Republican who's running against him. Uh, and and it's because he's want running as a populist, working class person who cares about working people. You, and you see that pattern in other states. Tammy Baldwin, who is as progressive a senator as, as there is in the Senate, she's had huge money dumped against her, but she's still doing well in, 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 in Wisconsin. Um, and you go through state after state in the, in the Midwest, in the West, it's it's populist Democrats, it's progressive Democrats, it's working class oriented Democrats, outsider oriented Democrats that have that are running better campaigns than uh, these new Democrats who are hewing more to Wall Street's line. Well, let's get specific about the issues. Are we talking here about Medicare for all, a fifteen dollar minimum wage, free college tuition, uh, a multi trillion dollar infrastructure program? Action on climate change, are these the issues that work in all these places? Uh, I think for the most part, I think the only, the only one of those issues that is, is going to be more controversial in, in some of those places is Medicare for all. Um, and I think in a lot of places, it's going to be plenty popular. And I think if you frame it right and talk about it right, uh, you can sell it. But I think there might be a little bit of a reaction in some, in some more conservative working class areas to how much is that going to cost us? Uh, and, and I think among, uh, among some seniors are like, we like our Medicare. We don't, we don't want you to do something to ruin the system by adding everybody else. in. there, there there's kind of a defensive reaction from folks who, who already have it, uh, and like it. But I think, I think it's an issue that can be talked about, framed, explained in a way that, um, that even, even reluctant folks, go along with it. And I think that there are also, you know, alternatives that you can talk about. There's a new proposal out that, that Jeff Merkley, who's on the Medicare for All bill, but he's also pushing some different alternatives that he's been pushing, which is the idea of maybe, maybe not initially Medicare for All, but, but at least Medicare for everyone who wants it and needs it. <laughs> right? So the basic idea is if you, if you want to keep your current plan, you'd still be allowed to do so. But anybody who who has a has a bad plan or who doesn't have a plan or is getting screwed by the by the state exchanges can can jump into Medicare. Well, there's one thing I notice about this list: Medicare for all, fifteen dollar minimum wage, free college tuition. This is the Bernie Sanders agenda from 2016, and Bernie Sanders was very controversial. Bernie Sanders didn't win the primary. There's still a lot of antagonism to Bernie Sanders in the party establishment. Do you think the people who opposed Bernie Sanders in 2016 are ready to adopt his program now? I think the party is moving in that direction. You know, uh, Bernie, Bernie was remarkable in that nobody gave him a prayer to do anywhere near as well as he did uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton got more more endorsements, more support from the party establishment than, than literally any non-incumbent had ever gotten. Um, and Bernie still came close to winning because of the power of that message. 
in in a different kind of campaign in a wide open race, uh, I think a, a candidate uh, with that kind of message uh, would win the primary. Uh, and I think we will see in 2016 more candidates moving in that direction uh, just because they know that's where uh, the energy in the party is. Now, what the opponents of, let's call it the Bernie agenda and the Democratic Party say is that this is not going to win over the uh, suburban moderates who in the past voted Republican, but now are turned off by Trump and oppose Trump. These people are ready to be recruited to oppose Trump and having a truly left-wing program is not going to succeed with suburban moderates. What do you think about that argument? Well, I talk about that uh, a lot in my book. I think this the suburban moderate is one of the more overhyped demographic groups in American politics and, and, and has been for a while. If, if you look at, uh, and, and exit polls are flawed, uh, but if you look at the combination of voting patterns, exit polls, pre-election polls, post-election polls, uh, that, that whole mix of numbers, you don't find any evidence that uh, this, these quote-unquote suburban moderates or, or suburban Republicans voted for Hillary in any higher degree, uh, that, that they swung more toward us than, than they, they might have in a normal uh, election year. She got a little bit, uh, a, a little bit more uh, votes from them than, uh, than Obama did against Romney, but it wasn't that much. Uh, at, whereas most of our money, most of our targeting, most of our mail, most of our TV was targeted to those voters. I think the I think the Clinton campaign became over obsessed with those voters because they most of the time at the end of the day they tend to support Republicans. Look, if a congressional candidate is running in that kind of seat that's heavy with with uh, higher income suburban moderates. Maybe they don't talk so much about about some of those issues. Maybe maybe they run their own campaign in their own way. But I think if you look at the numbers, there's a lot more working class people than there are higher income suburbanites. There's a lot more people uh, in uh, in mixed uh, mixed income and mixed race suburbs than there are in high income suburbs. There's a lot more swing voters by any measure of the of the term uh, among working class folks than there are among higher income folks. I'll say one final thing. There's a lot of there's a lot of folks uh, in, in those higher income suburban swing vote categories who are actually actually tend to be with us on uh, a lot of issues. A lot of them love their public schools. A lot of them are appalled by how much money, how much debt their kids have to get into to go to college. A lot of them have no problem with $15 minimum wage because they want people to come out of poverty. Uh, there, a lot of them are with us on immigration. To, to worry about offending a few of them uh, on a few of these economic issues uh, seems to be a, a case of, uh, uh, of over-obsessing over uh, to me. One last question, campaign financing. You know, we're told money talks and, and the candidate who raises the most money almost always wins. Most campaign funding pays for TV ads and consultants. My understanding is those don't really convince people to turn out and vote uh, who are skeptic, skeptical or apathetic or undecided. 
what convinces people is face-to-face contact with their neighbors who come and talk to them on their doorstep. What do you think about the, the obsession with campaign funding in this cycle and all cycles? I think that we got uh, over-obsessed with TV ads uh, a long time ago and that you could argue back in the 70s and 80s when I was coming into politics uh, that that made more sense than it does now. But I have never thought that it's made, that we should be spending the percentage of our campaign budgets on TV that, uh, that are spent. Um, I think that investments in, in classic, old-school, person-to-person, friend-to-friend, peer-to-peer, worker-to-worker, church-member-to-church member, and door to door, and 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 phone to phone, right? Yeah. Uh, and now social media to social media. I think that kind of person to person organizing is is extremely important, and it's far more trusted and trustworthy by the people who are receiving those messages than TV ads are. People have grown incredibly cynical about political TV ads. Shocking, right? Uh, <laughs> why would they be cynical about right. TV ads? They have, they have, but they have, and, and and that's a good thing. So I think we need to trust the people to people work a lot more than uh, than TV ads. That's not to say that I'm against ever spending any money on TV ads. Of course you spend some, and of course you spend some on some radio, some cable, some uh, some direct mail, some digital ads. But I, as a as a campaign consultant today. I'm telling candidates, spend a lot more of your resources on person-to-person organizing than on TV. Mike Lux, his new book is How to Democrat in the Age of Trump. You can read him at thenation.com. Mike, thank you. It's been great having you on the show. Uh, Absolutely. Happy to do it. And uh, anytime you want me back, I'm happy to come. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. The New York Times reported on page one last week, quote, There is no hope. Crisis pushes Haiti to brink of collapse. The subhead said, Haitians say the violence and economic stagnation stemming from a clash between the president and the opposition are worse than anything they have ever experienced. For comment and analysis, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, best known for her work on Haiti. She's written about Haiti for The New York Times, The Washington Post, and CNN. Her books on Haiti include The Rainy Season and the award-winning Farewell Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Is the current crisis worse than anything that's happened there? Well, the earthquake was really bad, let's put it that way. That was 2010. But yes, in the sort of long aftermath of that earthquake, things have tended to fall apart a little more. There was a lot of uh, relief and reconstruction going on. There was a lot of money coming into Haiti, but not being apportioned properly by the uh, powers that be and by the outside friends of Haiti. And then uh, government was elected um, in a U.S. sort of sponsored election. 
uh, with a very, very low turnout because uh, Haitians don't have that much confidence in their elections anymore. And he won fairly substantively. And his name is Jovenel Moïse. He's a youngish guy who really has no experience in politics, but is has been tapped to be president by the earlier president, Michel Martelly, who had to leave power constitutionally and who was also put into power with a U.S. imprimatur and OAS imprimatur. And now Jovenel doesn't know how to run a government. The opposition can't stand him. He's seemingly quite corrupt, but hey, <laughs> join the club, Jovenel Moïse. But the forces of order are not keeping order. And also, when you have almost an entire population involved in the unrest, it's hard to keep the order without shooting people. And they are trying but not succeeding uh, to not shoot people. I think about 20 people have now been killed in the protests, which are nationwide. So uh, big picture, historical perspective, you write in The Nation, Haiti has always been a leader in seismic shifts in how the world functions. Haiti, for example, I mean, this is the big thing in Haitian history, of course. It was a, a slave colony of the French, sugar producing. And then uh, beginning in 1791 and up through 1804, there was a revolution led by self proclaimed generals who rose out of the slave population of Haiti and who finally beat off Napoleon's forces and declared themselves a sovereign nation in 1804, which was very, very early. And that revolution essentially provided the spark over time for the end of slavery in the colonies and the end of slave economies throughout the world. Imagine you're, you know, not that far away. Louisiana is right there. And you're running a slave country when this revolution breaks out in 1804. So figure that if you can, my listeners, you know when the Civil War was and when slavery was ended in the United States. This is a good long time before, and it was very scary to um, the American government. And in fact, one little known fact about Haiti that I've been promoting for many years is because of the Haitian Revolution, Napoleon decided that the Americas were a waste of his time and manpower, and he pulled out of the uh, Louisiana territories and sold them to Thomas Jefferson in 1803. Uh, and the Louisiana Purchase made the United States a continental country. So thank you, Haiti, for making us a continental power. And next historic moment, 1929. Haiti was subjected to a U.S. Marine occupation from 1915 through 1929. Uh, the ostensible reason was too much violence in the streets of Haiti, but it's hard to imagine the United States could have cared less about too much violence. Citibank was operating in Haiti. There were American businesses in Haiti, and they needed to keep the, uh, the streets and the country somewhat stable for those businesses to keep... Uh, working with cheap Haitian labor and extracting Haitian produce and also to harbor Citibank's various business interests there. But in 1929, after many, many years of a sort of mountain-based revolt by Haitians, the marine occupation came to an end finally. Um, so that was also a very early version of uh, – freedom fighters working to uh, ensure that there was sovereignty in their own nation. And now, now you say the local elite has been running what you call 
a predatory system that's an example of pure capitalism. How does that work? So it's kind of a remnant of the slave state. And there's a sort of mixed, light-skinned elite and a business class who've been running the country now ever since Duvalier left in 1986 and before, really ever since the revolution maybe 20 years after the revolution, these people began to make their presence felt very strongly. They're landowners, and now they run businesses and import-export. And it's about 11 really major families. Like whenever I run into a Haitian who I don't know, I always say, what's your last name? And then I know exactly how high up in this uh, structure they are. And they to profit from uh, the poverty of the country. They're very wealthy. They live up on the top of the hill that overlooks the capital. And uh, some have plantations in the countryside also. And they use very, very cheap Haitian labor because everyone's starving. And they basically keep the Haitian people at this poverty level so that you have to work very, very hard to earn very, very little. You can't save anything, and therefore you can never better your children's future. So they, they keep generation after generation in dire poverty through very low wages, very high costs for a Haitian. And that's why also there is an attempt to leave the country all the time, and people die on the high seas, and then President Trump won't let them in because they come from a not very attractive country to him. And uh, and the cycle keeps repeating itself with these same families. I mean, they have names from the revolutionary days running the show. You have an amazing line in your new piece at The Nation. Try to see Haiti as the United States today is run by Trump, but concentrated into a thimble. Well, so Haiti is tiny and the U.S. is gigantic. But what I'm talking about here is really income inequality of the direst kind. Also, I live in L.A., so we have a big homeless problem here, and it feels like it's a reflection of the income equality with a house just sold in Bel Air here in L.A. for um, $90 million, and yet I'm driving through streets where homeless people are living under overpasses, and sometimes I feel like I'm right back home in Haiti. And, uh, you know, the Haitians live in places that, if you saw them, you would think These were houses, sort of, but they're made of cardboard and tin and some wood slats, and they're slapped together by Haitians with their own hands, and then they turn into these sort of city shanty towns that look permanent but aren't really permanent, and they're really, essentially, they're homeless people, but they've built a little home. The current Haitian president, you say, is basically incompetent. Has there been Any Haitian president in recent memory who was able to do the bare minimum of making sure that Haitians have food and shelter and basic education? No. But very few have tried. Some have tried. I would say that these are the ones who wanted to. Uh, That's President Aristide, who was roundly run out of Haiti once and then reinstated by Clinton and then roundly run out of Haiti when uh, when George Bush followed Clinton into the White House. And then his sort of protege, René Préval, also tried in a limited way to do some good and succeeded to do a little bit of tiny good. And then he had to leave office. So, And since then, nothing. And this brings us to Trump. We know what Trump thinks of Haiti. 
Is there something we could call a Trump administration policy towards Haiti right now? No. My sense of the Trump administration is, first of all, the uh, State Department is somewhat depleted on all fronts. And then if you're not an important country, they don't think about you at all, which, you know, in the past, I would say is a big relief. (laughs) But because of of U.S. and French and uh, Canadian and U.N. policy in Haiti, the Haitian government is really diminished. And it really functions more as a corruption-generating machine than it does as a government. What monies come into it are lost or squandered or stolen. And um, it's because it's become so irrelevant, because the foreign powers come in, they distribute money, they don't like to go through the government, because now that it's been turned into a corruption machine, essentially by their policies, they don't want to lose their money there. Not only that, but Haiti is a country of, it is said, 10,000 NGOs, non-governmental organizations, which are foreign organizations that function, you know, as clinics and schools, and they're not registered. Haiti's trying to register them, but it's very hard. So it's like a, a secret outside infiltration of Haitian administration, so that the Haitian government has felt for a long time like, Well, they're doing what we do, so why should we do that? Let's just do corruption. Uh, I know you were in Haiti right after the earthquake in 2010. I remember you said at that point that people were hopeful. There was that Clinton-Bush initiative that was going to bring tens of millions to help rebuild Haiti. I guess that hope is gone now. I think it's gone. But it wasn't just the Clinton-Bush monies or or monies from France and Israel. I mean, everybody chipped in, you know. Even, even friends were giving money to the Red Cross, which failed abysmally. No, uh, people were hopeful because in that kind of emergency, they were working together. Like those big families that I was talking about were bringing their big Mercedes-Benzes downtown to pick up people to bring to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a degree of of cooperative effort briefly until the foreign money started coming in, and then everybody was trying to get as much foreign money as they could get. So I think that, in part, led to a, a, a sundering of a collaborative feeling very quickly. And... What's happened to the small Haitian middle class that existed before the earthquake? Go to Brooklyn. (laughs) They're in Brooklyn. They're in uh, they're in New Jersey. They're in Montreal. They're in Paris. They're in many other places where French is spoken, and uh, it's been a brain drain ever since the Duvaliers. But every time there is terrible economic stress in Haiti, both the more educated Haitians try to leave, and also the poorest of Haitians try to leave, and uh, some succeed. And, you know, what really is sad to me is to see how well Haitians do who get into an economy that works. And if they could just figure out how to have an economy that works in Haiti, then Haiti would be a giant success because its human power is exceptional. Amy Willens's article, Haiti is in the Streets, appears at thenation.com. Thank you, Amy. Thanks a lot, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. 
Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.